0: On an annual basis, the United States government spends millions of dollars to stop the spread of counterfeit currency. An entire division of the Secret Service is devoted to inspecting counterfeit currency and stopping its reproduction. Unknowingly, many of us perhaps have possessed one of these counterfeit bills. Just recently, I was at the store shopping and checking out. When I saw a man next to me very irate and frustrated because they did one of those uh, tests on his $20 bill and lo and behold it was not real and, and he didn't know. Unknowingly, he had one of these counterfeit $20 bills that he had picked up along the way. He didn't, he didn't know, it, he didn't intentionally seek to use this counterfeit bill and of course uh, there is uh, retroactive things that he could have done. But perhaps you're, you've been one that's been a victim of, of counterfeit currency. It's something that often is unknowing and goes without detection. We pass them off and we don't even recognize. They look so real. They look so genuine. They look so Authentic. Of course, the government over recent years has changed the face of our currency in order to make them more difficult to reproduce, more difficult for thieves to be able to capitalize on on unknowing citizens like ourselves. And Jesus himself also dealt with counterfeits regularly in his ministry. Not counterfeit currency, but counterfeit disciples. Regularly, Jesus was faced with with disciples. People who affirmed that they believed in Him. Who affirmed that they were Christians. But yet, as time would tell, as things would get hard, they would prove themselves to be counterfeit disciples. Well, John chapter 8 deals with the subject of counterfeit disciples. It, it It is a chapter meant to be a a kind of litmus test to see whether or not one is a true disciple of Jesus Christ, whether one is a true follower of Christ, whether one is genuine or a counterfeit. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been studying the, the gospel of John and last week we saw in John chapter seven, as Jesus made his way to the feast of the tabernacles, a a season of celebration in the life of Israel where they were reminded about God's provisions and cares for them over the years how he had freed them from slavery in Egypt and ushered them into the promised land and how over those 40 years of rebellion God had patiently protected them and provided manna from heaven provided them light by morning and or light by night and a cloud by morning A reminder that God was with his people wherever they went. And in John chapter 7, we saw there was confusion about who Jesus was. Jesus' brothers were confused about him. The crowds were confused. Even the religious leaders of the day were very confused about Jesus. We saw among the religious leaders a conspiracy, uh, an intensification of their hatred of Jesus and And of course, that will culminate in their handing Jesus over to Pilate for his execution towards the end of John's gospel. We also saw a sense of clarity. Jesus standing up on that great day when the water was being poured out as a sacrifice before the Lord, standing and declaring that all who are thirsty could come and drink of him, and and he would supply in them a, a spring welling up into eternal life. Well, John chapter eight and and subsequently chapter nine finds itself on that same day at that same festival, the festival of the tabernacles. And at this festival, there was not only a, a water ceremony, but a light ceremony. And it was during this light ceremony where they would be reminded about how God not only provided food and water in their wilderness wanderings, But how God had provided light. How God was literally before them as a fire, a pillar of fire that that they would follow through the wilderness and would lead them to the promised land. And it was this light as they lit this massive candelabra and saw the wonder and beauty that Jesus would stand and say and declare, I am the light of the world. I am what this light foreshadowed. And so in John chapter 8, we, we find ourselves here at this festival, Jesus declaring theological truth. But, but you see, John chapter 9, as we'll study next week, is really a living illustration of what we'll think about here in chapter 8. See, in John chapter 9, there was a man born blind. he never seen, and Jesus As he passed out at the end of chapter 8, he passed by this man as he's leaving the temple. And and he gives him sight as an illustration of the spiritual leaders who remain blinded in their sin. But how he would provide sight to all those who would believe in him. Well, before we go to John chapter 8, I want to make a, a couple comments. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Um, nor do I want to discourage any saints. We can, we can talk more about this uh, outside of this particular context. But, but if you have your Bibles open this morning, you'll notice a, a number of things very peculiar about your Bible this morning. And that is that John chapter 7 verse 53 through John chapter 8 verse 11 has brackets around it. Now if you're reading a King James Bible this morning, well you don't have those brackets, but you should. Uh, And you'll see that though that passage of scripture is bracketed off and has a footnote. And it says in that footnote that most of the, none of the earliest, none of the earliest manuscripts, that is the earliest copies of this gospel have this story in it. In fact, and this isn't in the footnote, but in fact, no preacher or commentator commented on this passage until A thousand years after this book was written. Which leads myself and and others to conclude that this story about Jesus drawing in the ground and the adulterous woman as not being inspired. In other words, John didn't write it. In fact, as your footnote will say, this story shows up all over the place. and, And at one point at the end of Luke's gospel. And at the end of John's Gospel. Now, this story may have happened. It most likely, perhaps, is a true story, something that was passed down uh, through the generations and, and found its way into the scriptures, but it is not inspired scripture. Therefore, I'm not going to preach on it this morning. All right. Just like the ending of Mark isn't inspired. Neither is this. This is sort of. So if you want to talk more about that later, I don't want to discourage you right now in this moment. But we're going to begin this morning in verse 12. And in fact, if you're reading your Bible and you're a student of of scripture and you read chapter seven and then you begin reading in verse 12, you see that it flows quite naturally. uh, And and that that story of the adulterous woman just sort of really confuses the whole matter uh, as you think about it. So we're going to begin in verse 12 this morning. And, um, move on from there. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are being, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me, bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. And he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. For he was saying these things, for as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, friends, as we think about this passage, and of course, we'll continue through the end of the chapter um, this morning. The main question this chapter asks is, do you have genuine faith in Jesus? We saw there in the middle of this chapter, right there at the end of the reading, that some believed in him. But as we've already learned in John's gospel, that Jesus knew all men. He knew the heart of man and he knew that those who had a firm belief in him were not true disciples. And what Jesus is seeking to do in this passage is unfold these counterfeit disciples both in the Jews and their misconceptions and misunderstandings about Jesus and their own self-righteousness but also the confusion centered around um, centered around These false disciples. And so the point that we want us to sort of drive home this morning is this. Genuine saving faith is characterized by a persevering faith that accepts Jesus as the divine Messiah. Who abides in his word and acknowledges the need for a savior. And so, the purpose of our time this morning isn't really to cause doubt in your, in your heart. It isn't, it isn't cause discouragement to you as a saint to, to sort of, oh, I don't, am I really saved? That, that, that's not the point at all. But rather to evoke in you a, a genuine self reflection that uncovers that you are genuinely following Jesus which would lead to assurance of salvation. And so, so really the goal is to, to undergird and to assure that you're really following Jesus because you're doing the things that Jesus is calling you to do in this particular passage. So I ask the question again, do you have genuine saving faith? And really the, the, the main idea that I'm taking away from this is what Jesus says there in verse 31 If you abide in my word, you are truly, genuinely my disciples. And so this morning, we see three attributes of genuine saving faith. First, those who have genuine saving faith accept Jesus as the divine Messiah. As the divine Messiah. That he's not merely a man, but that he is fully man and fully God. And we see that revealed throughout this chapter in the statements that Jesus makes about himself and his father. Secondly, in this passage, we see that genuine saving faith, those who have it abide in Jesus' word. There is an abiding in his word. And, And I know that's Bible speak. That's a word you might be familiar with, you know, abide in me and I in you. But we want to think about what does it mean to abide in Jesus? To abide in Jesus' word. Third and finally we see here at the end of this chapter that those who have genuine saving faith acknowledge their need for a savior. Uh, A theme running throughout this entire chapter and and frankly through the whole book is this, this group of people who are blinded to their need for a rescuer. No one calls for help who does not think they need help. And part of following Christ is that that first step of confession. Confessing our need for a Savior. Well, let's look at these three points this morning in our time we have together. First, those who have genuine saving faith accept Jesus as the divine Messiah. Look with me here at verses 12 through 30. The real main idea being put forward here in this discussion between Jesus and the religious leaders, uh, identified first as the Pharisees, but then as the Jews, uh, is a discussion about Jesus' origin. And Jesus, here at the very beginning, the onset of this chapter, invites the reader to accept him as the divine Messiah. Look at here in verse, verse 12. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now to understand what Jesus is saying here, you need to understand that, that old Testament sort of context, the background. I've already alluded to the context of the festival itself, Uh, but but as you study the Old Testament, you'll find that throughout it, the use of light is used as a metaphor to God uh, revelation, his revealing of himself, but also of leading. You see, light is, is not only illuminating, it's blinding. Uh, light has the effect of not only guiding one's path, but obscuring one's vision. If you've ever tried to stare at the sun and, and then try to walk, you know that it's impossible. So the sun can be illuminating. It can lighten the path and you can walk by it. But you can also stumble if you stare at it too long. And Jesus here uses this metaphor in in a sort of dual meaning. Uh, Illuminating, but also blinding. In the Old Testament, we are told in Exodus 13 that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them and at night in a pillar of fire to give them light. And so Jesus here at this festival is again declaring that he is the fulfillment of what God did in the Old Testament. You might wonder, well, how is light a savior? Well, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt. There was a million of them, and now they're in in the wilderness. You and I are so accustomed to seeing the, the light. Even when it's the darkest night, the light from the city still shines the sky. You can still look out in the horizon. And it's not until you get way out, right? You start getting further and further away from city lights that you begin to see how dark this world really is. And in the midst of that wilderness, in the midst of that desert, the Israelites had no clue where they were. And it was the light, the fire that God provided that was the guiding light that led them through and rescued them from what would have been danger. And Jesus here is declaring that he is the one who is the light who will lead God's people to the promised land. But not only in the law do we see light used by God, but also in the prophets. And particularly in Isaiah's prophecies, uh, thinking when Isaiah was, was prophesying about uh, the this new era of God's redemptive plan, when the Messiah would come, when the Anointed One would come. One example: Isaiah forty two. The Lord reveals to Isaiah, "I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you." Doesn't that sound a lot like what He did in the wilderness? I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind and to bring out of the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. Jesus here is declaring that he is the fulfillment of what Isaiah foreshadowed, that a new era of God's redemptive plan has been ushered in through the coming of his son. Jesus here in this passage is making strong theological claim to be God's anointed one, the Messiah who has come. But more than that, we see that Jesus makes clear that he is from heaven and not of earth. One of the confusions that centered around Jesus and his identity was where Jesus was from. Notice here, for example, look back here to John chapter seven. If you have your Bibles open. If you do, John chapter seven, you remember there at the end of chapter seven, when the the Pharisees are having a conversation with one of their fellow Pharisees by the name of Nicodemus and, and they, Nicodemus is like, Hey, we should give Jesus a hearing. Let's not just, you know, throw him out. Let's listen to him. And there in verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, John doesn't comment on that, does he? He doesn't say, well, Jesus wasn't from Galilee. These guys are foolish. No, no, no. See, that John assumes that you as a reader already know that Jesus isn't from Galilee. That Jesus is, in fact, from Bethlehem, the city of David, in fulfillment of the prophecy. You see, there was a lot of confusion about where Jesus was from. And here in this chapter, Jesus makes clear to these religious leaders that he is not from earth, but that he is from heaven. This is what we see in verses 13 through 20 in the discussion that Jesus is having. He's saying, listen, you're from this world. I'm not even from this world. I'm from heaven. Jesus reveals to them his divine origin. Jesus here is telling them and accusing them of judging according to external things rather than internal things. This was the real problem of these, these religious leaders. All they looked at was the outside and Jesus is saying, listen, what really matters is the heart, not so much external matters. This is why you're blind because you look at only outward things rather than inward things. And so Jesus here appeals to the law in verse 17 and says, listen, your law says, and here he's alluding to to Numbers 35, that the testimony of two or three is sufficient to declare judgment. And, And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm testifying that I'm from heaven. My father is testifying that I'm from heaven, and therefore that should be sufficient for you to believe that I'm from heaven. And so he reveals his his origin and exposes their misunderstandings in these verses. But not only that, in verses 21 through 30, we see that Jesus here reveals his divine mission and destiny. One of the things for you and I to think about is that Jesus isn't just sort of rogue doing his own thing. No, Jesus here is submitting to his father. He is making clear that, hey, listen, I am on my father's mission. I'm here to do my father's will. This is why I've come. We get a sense of a, a looking behind the curtain of the Trinity in this section. Where we begin to see this sort of uh, relational uh, love and and submission between the Father and the Son and and the interaction between them. This isn't isn't just temporal. This isn't just Jesus' first advent. No, this is eternal. This is how the Father and the Son eternally relate to one another. As the Son seeks to glorify the Father and the Father seeks to glorify the Son. There is a sense of wonder and beauty in the way the the Godhead, the triune God works. In other words, I could say it this way, that you and I, in receiving redemption, have been caught up in a a cosmic love and, and glory of the Father and the Son. An eternal display of God's care and compassion. We were already told in John chapter 1, That Jesus has come to reveal the Father's glory. That that we've beheld His glory. Glory is of the only Father, full of grace of truth. This is Jesus' mission. Jesus came to earth to display the Father's glory. But not only that, we see in this section that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the Father's will to die. Verse 28, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, Then you will know that I am he and that I can do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. Jesus says that that at the crucifixion, there will be an illuminating effect. So often when we read this passage, we think, oh, when people look to the cross there, they receive salvation. That is not Jesus's point. Jesus's point is this. You will realize what you have done, and you will die in your sins. There will be a sense of shame, Jesus says, in the revelation of what you have just participated in. God's historic people would be willing participants in killing God's eternal son. Willing participants. Jesus says, when you lift me high, when you execute me, then the light bulbs will go be going off, and you will declare. And that's exactly what happens at the end of the gospel of John. When when the centurion looks, he sees him and his eyes are illumined that truly this was the son of God. You see, the cross of Christ, we are told in 1 Corinthians, has that dual effect. It it not only softens hearts and draws people in, but it hardens hearts. See, the cross isn't meant just to bring people to salvation, but also to condemnation. Because the cross is where we, as humanity, rebelled ultimately against God in killing his own son. Jesus reveals here in this section his divine mission and destiny. Now a number of things we saw that I'd sort of passed over which are infamous for John's gospel is Jesus in emphatic teaching and in, in really specific language that he uses. Notice again back there at verse 12, I am the light of the world. Ego eimi. I am the light of the world. And then, then later in this section, that passage I just uh, read to you in verse 28. And I could, we could show other ones, but I'll just know, show you a couple in this chapter. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And then finally in this chapter, in the very last verse, Jesus stands before them and says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus here is making a claim to being divine. He is laying claim to the I am of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 when Moses asked, Hey God, what's your name? When I go back to the people, who should I tell them sent me? God reveals his covenant name. I am who I am. Yahweh. And Jesus here in John chapter 8, more so than in any other chapter in all of John's gospel, repeatedly uses that language, I am Yahweh, I am. And if you want to doubt that, you want to say, that's not what he's claiming. Well, the Jews of that day understood very clearly what Jesus was claiming, because at the end of John chapter 8, they pick up stones to throw at him as a condemnation statement that he was committing blasphemy. Jesus is claiming to be the great I am. Jesus is claiming to be the divine Messiah. Not merely the Messiah, but but the divine Messiah. That he was fully God and fully man. Friends, we have to accept Jesus as the divine Messiah if we are to, to believe in him. To believe in him means that you accept him as all he has revealed himself to be. This is why we must know who are we believing in. It's one thing to say you believe in Jesus, but but friend, what does that mean? Who is this Jesus you believe in? Are you like the religious leaders sort of trying to fashion and make a Jesus that fits into your conceptual understanding of of the kind of savior you need Friend, If you would just read John's gospel, I guarantee if you would just read it at Face value, you would be confronted with a Jesus who is very foreign to an American Jesus. A Jesus that is not at the will of man. A Jesus who isn't so concerned about you having a better life now. A Jesus who isn't so concerned about having, making sure your bank accounts are full and that your, that your health checkup at the doctor is always clean. You will find a Jesus who says some of the most radical and uncomfortable things That you wouldn't take to a party. I guarantee you. No you find confronted a Jesus. Who is here to do his father's will. And to bring his father glory. Well the second aspect we see. The second attribute we see in this passage. Of genuine faith. Is there in verses 31 through 47. Look with me there. We see that genuine disciples are those. Who not only accept Jesus, but abide in Jesus. And particularly in his word. Genuine disciples, we are told, are those who are set free from sin by the truth of the gospel. And this is the key idea. The truth. The truth about Jesus and the truth about ourselves. You see, if you don't rightly understand yourself and you don't rightly understand Jesus, then there is no genuine faith. Notice what Jesus says to to these disciples. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know that the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, the truth is central to understanding uh, of genuine saving faith. The truth. What what is Jesus in reference to? Well, he's referring to the truth of the gospel, the the truth that he's been revealing. If, If you affirm the truth rather than a lie. You see, these, disciples, these, these false disciples, these, these counterfeits, these Jews, were believing a lie about who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. And Jesus is making emphatically clear that you have to believe in me as your rescuer, a rescuer that you don't maybe like. You see, Jesus didn't come to do what they wanted. They wanted a king who would get rid of Rome who would get Roman occupation out of town. They wanted a king who would usher in the glory days of Israel, reunify Israel, re-bring her all back together, and she would be the powerhouse that she was always meant to be. And Jesus is like, no, I came to die on a bloody cross and to be born again and to usher in a new heaven and new earth. Forget this stinking land. We're bringing in a new earth and a new heaven. And the Jews wanted nothing to do with it. Jesus came to bring the truth of the gospel. And the truth that he is making here and the claim that he is making is that those who truly believe the gospel are set free from sin. Notice the delusion of these, of these, deci- these counterfeit disciples in verse 33. We are the offspring of Abraham and have never, ins- have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that we will become free? Now, any, you know, novice student of the Bible, the Jewish people know that the Jews have really been slaves of multiple people. First, the Egyptians, and then after the Egyptians, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and and now the Romans. In actuality, the the Jews haven't been freed all that too long. One could really, frankly, argue that they've been enslaved in themselves from the beginning because... Of their sin. And Jesus here is making clear where there is tremendous confusion that Jesus has come to set them free finally. What do they need to be set free from? Well, they needed to be set free from themselves. Now, if you remember back in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, you remember the main argument that Jesus was making there is that he is greater than Moses. See, Moses was that pinnacle leader that everybody, everybody wanted a president like Moses. I don't know, maybe like you, maybe like, man, if we could just have a president like, I don't know, Ronald Reagan. Uh, If we could have a president like, you know, so and so, right? There's those iconic figures in the life of a nation that people point to. Man, we need a, a leader like X. Well, for the nation of Israel, it was Moses. What would solve all of our problems if we could have a leader again like Moses? And Jesus says, I'm here. I'm the leader. I'm the one who fulfills that prophecy that Moses made. Well, Jesus not only transcends Moses, but here in this chapter, what Jesus is is emphatically arguing is that he is greater than Abraham. Now that Jesus has sort of squashed the idea about Moses, Jesus here is coming after their father, Abraham. You see, where their assurance rested was in their Identity with Abraham. It was their ethnic identity. They thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were safe. That they were off limits to God's judgment and God's wrath. They thought they were good with God because they were children of Abraham. And Jesus is making clear that the true children of Abraham and the true children of Israel are those who believe in him as the divine Messiah. Genuine disciples, he says, are those who are set free from sin by the truth of the gospel. This is the point that Jesus is making. And that if you are truly free, you are free forever. This is why Jesus is again appealing to uh, and seeking to undermine their false assert, their false assurance. Look there again at verse 38. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me by my word because my word find no, finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from my father and you do what you've heard from your father. Jesus will go on to, to argue that his father, that their father is, is really Satan. The point that Jesus is, is in making in the claim that he is making here. Is that those that are true disciples are those who abide in his word. That is, listen to his word and submit to it. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, Paul says, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Or 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Jesus is is here undermining what so often you and I are tempted with. The false sense of assurance that comes from life in this world. My parents are Christians, therefore I'm a Christian. I go to church, therefore I'm a Christian. I'm a member of a church, therefore I'm a Christian. I pray, therefore I'm a Christian. I ex, therefore I am a Christian. You see, there's so many things that you and I appeal to that are that are foreign to and apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus here is making clear that only the truth of the gospel sets you free, not any ethnic or socio or communal relationship. He makes clear in verses thirty nine through forty one that genuine disciples believe and obey his word. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Again, they're, they're appealing to their, their ethnic identity. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Jesus here makes clear that genuine disciples believe and obey his word. He's exposing in them that they're not really genuine disciples, because if they were, they would be doing what Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? Well, we learned in Genesis that Abraham was a man of faith. He wasn't a perfect man. He he had places where he often failed and fell short. But he was a man of faith. We we are told that his actions, his, his faith, were accredited to him as righteousness. He was a man who believed the promises of God. A man who trusted and obeyed God's word. He was a man who obeyed even to the point of sacrificing his son. Willing to sacrifice Isaac. This was what the Jews should have been doing. But instead, they're following their own words and their own laws. Genuine disciples, Jesus said, are those who believe and obey. As John would write later in 1 John chapter 3, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You see, obedience is one of the, the measures of true, true discipleship. Obeying the words of Jesus. For this morning, one of the questions you want to ask yourself is, is am I obeying all of Jesus' words? Or just the ones I like. See, genuine saving faith is a result of those who believe all of Jesus' words and do the will of the Father. Thirdly, we see in this section that genuine disciples love Jesus and his word. One aspect that distinguishes false, counterfeit disciples from true disciples is love. Notice what Jesus writes or says here in verse 41, that second half. They respond by giving an insult. They insult him. We were not born of sexual immorality. In other words, they're accusing Joseph and Mary of sexual immorality. It was one of the rumors about Jesus. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This is a pretty strong claim, isn't it? Jesus here is connecting love of God, which is the chief virtue of the first four commandments. Okay. So if you were to take the, the, the 10 commandments, the Decalogue, love God, commandment one through four and love others, right? The rest of the commandments. All right. All the way to 10, love God and love others, right? And that, how Jesus summarized the law to love God and to love others. That's the, the chief end of man is to love God. Jesus here is saying that if you truly love God, then you would love me because I am God. See, that's one of the genuine tests of a true disciple is one who loves Jesus that bears his word. Notice what he goes on to say. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? He asks a rhetorical question for which he provides the answer. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. What an accusation he makes! You cannot bear to hear my word. The words that Jesus was speaking were so hard. and so difficult. They couldn't even bear them. They, they were just like, I don't even want to listen. Don't. I can't. It's too hard. I don't want to hear my need. I don't want to hear us I don't want to hear about these things I just want to hear about how good I am, how wonderful I am, how successful I am I can't hear these things love for Jesus and love for his word. Friend do you love Jesus' word even his hard words? even the words that we've already heard and I've pointed out to you and Perhaps John chapter 6. That no one can come to me unless the Father brings him, draws him. That's a hard word, remember? That's a hard word. Or John chapter 10. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. That's a hard word. There's a lot of hard words in the Gospel of John. Do you believe them? See, genuine disciples are those who, who abide... Who hang out, who immerse themselves, who marinate themselves in the word of God, who know Jesus's words better than any other words. Friends, this is what we've gathered to think about, right? What we have open before us isn't man's words, but Jesus's words. What we've came to seeing is G- we want to abide in his word. But we don't want to just give lip service to Jesus' word. Just a, just a mere mental assent. But we want to abide in it. We want to obey it. We want to we search and see how can we follow Christ more faithfully this week than we did last week. Well, third and finally, we see in this section, in this chapter, that those who have genuine saving faith are those who acknowledge their need for a savior. Friend, this morning, if you want to know whether or not you are genuine and saved, it, it comes to this acknowledgement of your need. Not, not your neighbor's need, not your kid's need, not your parents' needs, not my need, but your need for a rescuer. Do you believe that you need to be rescued? This is the point that Jesus is going to drive home here at the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? See, in this chapter, they're just throwing insults again and again. That sexually immoral. They think that he's crazy. We, you don't have a father. We don't know where your father is. You're illegitimate. Now, now the, the insults get a little bit more. Now he's a Samaritan and he has a demon. Now, Some historical context is helpful here. See, there was a Samaritan who believed himself to be a son of God whom all the people thought was demon-possessed. And so they're saying, oh, are you acting like that, dude? Is that what you think you are? You're that Samaritan guy who thought that he was God, uh, but we just proved he was just demon-possessed. Jesus says, no. I don't have a demon. Verse 48, 49. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, are you not yet 50 years old? And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You see, fundamentally, these Jews were left in judgment. This is what Jesus appeals to. He says, you really have really two options. You either acknowledge your need for me to save you and I will come in and save you. Or you reject me. And there is a judge waiting for you. This is what he says, isn't it? Verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. In other words, if you do not accept me. My father will judge you. For rejecting me. Jesus here is pressing home this need for a rescue. For a need to be saved. A need to to be saved from one's sin. We see in this particular passage here uh, what we saw and heard in Romans chapter 6 and in chapter 10. In Romans 10, for out of the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, a part of confession is confessing not only our sin, but our need for Christ to rescue us. This is what the Jews were unable to see, their need for Jesus. For them, Abraham was sufficient. For them, just having been a part of the Abrahamic family, they thought that was sufficient. But what they missed was the very thing that Abraham possessed, which was faith in the promises of God. The promise that God would rescue them and save them. For this morning, the question you want to ask is, is do I need to be rescued? Is my sin great enough that that I need to be rescued? The very fact that Jesus has come is sufficient evidence of your need to be rescued, that there is no other rescuer coming nor rescue plan. There's there's no plan B. If you were to read back through this chapter, you will see Jesus emphatically saying, if you don't believe in me, what will happen? You will die in your sins. You're not going to turn up into heaven and God's going to be like, well, okay, I'll give you a second chance. Try it again. No, no, no. You will die in your sins, in the state that you find yourself in. It is only by turning to Christ today that you will be freed from your sin. You see, genuine saving faith acknowledges Jesus as the rescuer. It says that Jesus is the only way friends in a, in a pluralistic society that sees multiple ways to the divine. That is a hard saying to look at someone and say, unless you believe and live and follow Jesus, you will die in your sins. In our culture that you are going to get smacked upside your head. That is unacceptable in an age that that believes in many ways to Jesus, or many ways to God, or many ways to the divine. No, the exclusive claim that Jesus makes is that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that all that come to him will have eternal life. Jesus makes clear who he is, doesn't he, at the end of this chapter? The Jews ask him emphatically and clearly, Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, all right, gloves are off. I'll tell you who I am. I am. The Jews are not confused about what Jesus is saying. Though you may be. Or maybe I am. No, they understood very clearly that Jesus is claiming himself to be the great I am of the Old Testament. The Lord God Almighty. He says, I am who I am. I am the pre existent one. I existed before Abraham. I am the eternal son of God. And I have come to rescue you. I am who I am. Friend, do you need a savior this morning? Or are you like these Jews who saw no need to be rescued? The great I am has come. The one whom we've sung about. The one whom we've heard has come to rescue us from our sin. And to usher us into a new kingdom. As Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1. That, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, what Jesus came to do. For genuine saving faith is characterized by a persevering faith. A, a faith that endures to the end. And abides in the word of God. And acknowledges the need for a rescue. Friend, I hope that you are not. Doubtful of your own salvation. It's not the hope or point. But rather a cause for us to reflect again. Afresh each week. Am I following Jesus? That's what we're about to do through partaking of the Lord's Supper. A season in which we can reflect. A, a, another month has gone by. Where I can hold the elements and I can think. Am I following Jesus? How will I resolve to follow Jesus more faithfully this week? And this month? and This year? than I did previously. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word would abide in us as we abide in you. Christ, I pray that we would glorify you in all that we say and do. We would acknowledge you as our Savior, the one who has come to rescue us. Father, may we glorify you. Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us yet the strength to endure yet another week. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.